to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. is Isaiah 61. You can find that on page 739 of the Bibles in front of you. So that's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, For the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them, and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness." As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Hi, my name is Hugh. Um, Our second reading is from Luke, page 1018, it's chapter 4, starting at verse uh, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Hello again. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we pray now as we take this word and put it in our hearts, that righteousness and praise would spring up as you promised in Isaiah, that we might see you clearly as we ought, For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder if you've seen a movie this summer yet. Uh, Cass and I tried to go on Tuesday, but the movie we tried to go to had sold out, so we haven't, just so you know. Um, But uh, all the movies around and things like that have had me on YouTube a lot, looking at trailers and things, and and I've been quite uh, in amazement at how far trailers have come in our world. They really are quite remarkable realities. Uh, to, the, to the extent that I think now, movie trailers are the thing that we use to sell anything, right? 
You know that experience when you're watching a TV show sometime and there's this ad and there's these two lovey-dovey couples kind of cozying up and you're like, oh, this kind of looks like a movie maybe we'll watch someday. Not my kind of movie, but you know, whatever. Um, and then you're like, oh, it's for, it's for a watch or, you know, it's for a car or some sort of, um, you know, burrito. Uh, that was unexpected. But we, we use trailers to sell pretty much everything these days. And I think the reason why is because the movie trailer has a particular way of wetting the appetite of the human self. I have a couple of examples for you. Here is one of uh, the all-time greatest trailers uh, for the movie Alien in 1979. I won't show you all of it, but it gets super creepy at the end. And, and it kind of invites you into the whole haunting, claustrophobic um, horror of being stuck in space. The final line of the whole trailer is that you cannot be heard screaming in space. Then there is the Blair Witch Project. Uh, this is the 90s, right? Yeah, I think this was, I was an, a young teenager when this came out. This was one of those first trailers that came out with the shaky camera thing. It's about to happen. There it is, shaky camera thing. Uh, and you're, taken, you're invited into the full horror of the film in the trailer. Trailers have this way of ep- wetting our appetite and making us long for things. Here's what one expert in making trailers says. A trailer cut well needs to arouse, provoke, seduce, and beguile. Yes, these are romantic adjectives, which is the point. You need to make viewers fall in love with your film even before they've seen it. Trailers are about promise and possibility. They invoke a sense of want and need. To paraphrase Shakespeare, they are the stuff that dreams are made of. Trailers tap our longing for hope and new beginnings. That's why they are released in such uh, so great number at the beginning of a year. That time of possibility and hope. What we come to today in Luke chapter 4 is the reason why the trailers of the world touch the strings of our hearts. What we see in chapter 4 of Luke is the trailer of Jesus' own kingdom. It is the little taste, the little wedding of, of what he will bring into the world. And it is the trailer that all trailers have been waiting for. And the new beginning that all our new beginnings have been waiting for. Now as we examine this together, I want to ask some questions Uh, about this, three questions about the trailer of Jesus' ministry and what it points towards. And the first question I want to ask is this, why is it or how is it that what Jesus brings is good news? Because I think uh, in our world today, that question is legitimately up for grabs. Whether Jesus himself or perhaps maybe just his followers can genuinely bring anything good into this world anymore. But what Jesus says here is that what he has come is to bring good news. Let's look at that question first. What we get as we enter this chapter in verse 14 and 15 is a summary of his ministry. He goes throughout Galilee preaching in synagogues. And then we're taken into this particular scene. And we're we're kind of brought in in slow motion to every little detail. We see Jesus in Nazareth. It's his hometown, home synagogue in his customary place. We, we, We hear him stand up. We see the attendant grab the scroll uh, and, and he's handed the scroll and he starts unrolling it. 
You're like, do we really need to know this, Luke? Right? He's unrolling it, and, he's, and, and, he, and he finds the place, and then he says it, and then he rolls it back up, and he hands it, and he goes and sits down. It's all in slow motion, right? We're, draw, we're being drawn in to this moment. Because you see, the, the, the text that Jesus chooses is the most controversial one he could find. Isaiah is full of talk of this Messiah, the Harry Potter prophesied figure, right? Just think Harry Potter, that'll help. But there is one place in Isaiah where the Messiah speaks. When we stop talking about Harry Potter, and Harry Potter speaks to us, and it's Isaiah 61, and Jesus rolls the scroll and reads it out. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach the good news. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all in slow-mo, this dramatic moment of Jesus announcing his Messiahship, that he is the one God has sent into the world in the power of the Spirit to bring about a good thing. But the question is, well, what is so good about it, and is it actually good at all? Well, what Jesus says is that it's good news for the poor, in verse 18. For the prisoner, for the blind, and the oppressed. This word of good news is a complete social revolution, Jesus thinks. A complete upheaval of the way society is in total. He sums it up by saying, it is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this takes us all the way back to a text in Leviticus 25, where there was a social custom amongst the Israelites that there was a 50-year cycle in their economy. And what would happen is you'd start out with your farmland and, and then there'd be some famine and you'd lose a, a crop and then you couldn't sustain it and so you sold it to someone else and you became a worker for them and you kind of lost your farm. Uh, and during those 50 years, you'd hand it on uh, to your son and they wouldn't have the land anymore. But in the 50th year, every debt was cancelled. And every piece of land was handed back to its family of origin. It was the year of Jubilee, the year of the cancelling of all debts, the year in which the poor all of a sudden were no longer poor. A complete social revolution. It was Israel's way of making sure that poverty was not endemic, but that it could happen for a time but not forever. And what Jesus says is that his coming is the ultimate day of Jubilee. The ultimate day of the upturn of society. Can you imagine preaching this in Syria right now? Or in parts of Southeast Asia or parts of Africa? In famine and drought? Good news of a day when the poor would no longer be poor? When things were being completely righted? This is the good news. But how does Jesus make this happen? And how is it that this good thing can even begin? Well, let me illustrate it for you a little bit. Because the reality is that this day of Jubilee starts with a bigger reality. Not a material uh, Jubilee, but a spiritual one. The end of Luke, uh, Jesus sends out his disciples with the word of forgiveness to all nations. That because of what all that he has done, there is a release from spiritual captivity. 
And when that takes hold in society, that's when things start to get crazy. Let me illustrate it for you, though. Um, I, one of my old bosses uh, was very forgetful, right? He was a busy guy. Uh, he had young kids, so maybe that's what was happening at the time when this thing went down. Um, but he borrowed a Thomas the Tank Engine DVD, which you did back then, not anymore with Netflix and whatnot, and iView or whatever. Um, he borrowed said DVD, brought it back, and you know how DVDs get lost, you know, behind cabinets, under things, whatever. And, you know, a few days goes past, a few weeks go past, a few months go past, a year goes past. And then one day he's cleaning out the cabinet and there's this Thomas the Tank Engine DVD there. And he's like, oh, come on. He's like, oh, I'm a minister, I'm supposed to be honest. I should probably take this DVD back, even though it's going to cost me hundreds of dollars, maybe even a thousand dollars just to get this stupid DVD back. Ponders it for a while, decides that probably he'll head back in and be honest, because that's probably just the thing to do when you're a minister. As he's contemplating this, a postcard arrives in the mail from the video store. It says in big caps on the front, we're wiping the slate clean. We'd like to welcome you back to our store. Simply bring in the postcard to your local video store and we will remove all extended viewing fees. No questions asked. That is Jubilee. The cancelling of debt. And what Jesus brings into the world is the cancelling, first of all, of our spiritual debt. In the Lord Jesus, the Lord our God wipes the slate clean, no questions asked by the blood of his son. And what that does in society is it means the poorest, the most forgotten, the most broken, the most messed up person all of a sudden has access to the living God again, no matter what they've seen, no matter where they've been. And that truth starts to turn the world upside down. That is good, where the good news for the poor begins, with the release from spiritual poverty. Now, you might be sitting in church today, today, January 8th, and you've come back into church for a new year thinking, I want to do better this year. I want to do better. I want to tell you, don't start with your effort. Start with the Jubilee. It's not that you need to do better. It's that you need to wipe the slate wiped clean. And when you know in the depth of your heart that it has been, that's when things start to change. The second question we want to ask, though, about this text, we've kind of said it's good, but what does it taste like? What does the good news of Jesus actually taste like? What does it mean for this jubilee to be let loose in the world? And in the latter half of the chapter, you get a series of three scenes that really give you a taste they really are the trailer escalating to what this good news really looks like. We get a man and a woman and a crowd. And we start with a man in, in Capernaum, and he's in the temple kind of crazily shouting out because the demon's in him. And the demon knows who Jesus is. He knows he's Harry Potter, right? No secret to the demon. Uh, and Jesus summons him out of the man. Now, you might be here in the church today going, I don't really do the demon thing. That's a little bit weird. Um, but to be honest, I think Newtown as a whole does the demon thing. There's a lot of spiritual sense in a lot of this suburb. 
Um, a lot of Western culture thinks that there aren't spiritual realities anymore. Um, but I'm not sure that that's exactly true. What's happened in Western culture is that we stop believing that spiritual things are outside us, that there are powers out there in the world. But what we've done is we've just substituted that for us. The way cultures used to think of spiritual powers being out there, we now think of them being in here. We believe wholeheartedly in the human self and in all its spiritual capacity in the same way that other people believed in angels and demons. So I don't think the belief has gone. I think it's just shift focus. But what Jesus says here is that the the good news he brings is the removal and the release from a, a, a legitimate spiritual oppression in the world. A legitimate darkness that for a time opposes God's purposes. But you notice what Jesus does? He silences him. He summons him out. And do you know what? He summons him out in a way without injuring the man. Luke is a doctor, right? He knows his stuff. And this guy was not injured. What Jesus does is he restores this man back. Body and soul. There was a demon in him. A demon in him. And yet he's back whole. Because that's what Jesus does. He restores people. You get, you get a picture back um, of the second person, of, of Simon, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, and she has a fever. And it says they asked Jesus to help her. It says, actually, that they asked Jesus concerning her. They didn't really ask for help because she's about to die, and so they don't really know what to do with that. And so they're just inquiring about Jesus. But Jesus comes in, and he rebukes the sickness in the same way that he rebuked the demon. And it says in verse 39 that it left her, and she got up at once and began to wait on them. Now, you're like, gender role alarm might be going off at a moment like that. Does she really need to be doing the dishes right after she kind of got up off her deathbed? Um, But don't let that um, spoil the beauty of it for for you for a moment. Because what was happening here is that a mum was about to die. A grandmother. A part of a network and a family and a village. And what Jesus has enabled is for that mum to be a mum again. And a grandmother. And a sister and a daughter. Jesus has restored her back to her motherhood, if you like. Because that is what the kingdom of God does. That's what Jesus is able to do. He's able to restore things in this world. Then you get into this third scene, and it's not just two people, but this whole crowd of people, and he's putting his hands on each one of them. They're lame, and they're blind, and they're dead, and they're dying, uh, and they have demons, and every single one of them is healed and saved. Because he doesn't have just authority over one demon-possessed man, and one dying mother, but over all reality, so that he can call it all back into order with his very words. That's what it says. They were amazed at the authority of his words, because when he said something, things came back together again, because that is the kingdom of God. Do you taste it? Do you see its goodness? Do you see its beauty? This is a picture of what Jesus is bringing into the world, the trailer of the kingdom of God. A 13-year-old named Anthony in the Bronx in the 90s. Now, if you know about the Bronx in the 90s, not so great. He's in one of the darker places of the Bronx at this time. He knows a pastor and he goes to church and the pastor asks him to write out what he thinks that future that Jesus is bringing into the world will look like. And Anthony says this. He says, God will be there. And he'll be happy that we've arrived. People will come in hand in hand, and it'll be, it'll be bright but, and not dim and gloomy like on earth. And there'll be all these friendly animals, but no mean ones. And no one will look at you from the outside. 
People from the street will be there. And my uncle will be there and he'll be healed. You won't see him buying drugs anymore. Because there won't be violence there and no guns and no drugs. And you'll recognize all the little children who've died when they were little. Jesus will be good to them and play with them. And God will be fond of you. What a beautiful little imagination. That is the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' kingdom. That is what all these miracles are appointed to. They're not the reality. They're just the trailer. But boy, does it taste good. Boy, is it incredible. And I I don't know if this has been good news in your head, but not in your heart when you've walked in here today. But I want to say, taste and see the goodness of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, in the power of God's spirit, is able to restore God's world. But there's a third question we have to ask, and this one hurts. If it is such good news then what's the obstacle to it going out? And the difficult reality that we see in this chapter is that we're the obstacle. Let's go back to the synagogue scene for a moment because Jesus has this amazing moment where he says, this text is about me, I'm Harry Potter. And then they're like, in verse 22, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus kind of lays into them a little. He says, surely you quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, Jesus is kind of perceiving something that's maybe happening in the background a little bit in this scene. And that's that in the Mediterranean world, it was expected that you had an in-group loyalty to both your family and your village. So if you rose, they rose with you. Your allegiance was to them, first of all. But what Jesus says is, you don't have that claim on me. I refuse your obligation. He then goes and quotes about Elijah and Elisha, two prophets in in, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, who did miracles not in Israel, but one for a Syrian and a Sidonian for people outside of the kingdom of God. Because they weren't owned by Israel that was wicked at the time. They were owned by God. Their allegiance wasn't to just their in-group and their loyalty, but to God, because that's what prophets do. Their loyalty is to God. And what happens when the crowd hear this insolence from Jesus is they decide that they'll throw him off a cliff. How dare you not be about us? and be about them. How dare you not fill out your obligation to us as family, as your village? Jesus refuses their agenda because the Messiah is not for one people, but all people. Not for one town, but all towns. In the same way, actually, the Capernaum crowd has the same issue, but to a lesser degree. They, they start realizing, actually, we should keep Jesus around because he's really useful. Like, he's healing everyone. If he stays long enough, no one's going to have a cold anymore. And I'm pretty sure if we ask him, he could grow some food even as well. And so they try and convince him to stay in verse 42. But Jesus says, I've got to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns because that's why I was sent. I'm not for Capernaum, I'm for the world. 
You see, both of these groups have become an obstacle to the good news by assuming that the good news is for them and not for others. By assuming that uh, it's for us, for me and mine, and not for them and all. But Jesus comes as good news to all poor, to all prisoners, to all blind, to all oppressed, because it is the year of the Lord's favor for all. And what happens to us in our thinking and in our world is that our vision so quickly narrows. This Jesus thing is about me and my church. This Jesus thing is about me and my own relationship with him. And not thinking that this Jesus thing is about his world. That he's wiped the slate clean for. For the poor and the broken and the oppressed and the hurting and they're dying. And when we don't see the good news as widely as Jesus does, we become an obstacle to it. And what I want to invite you to do tonight is to think about doing the opposite. Because the reality of Jesus' life is that all his miracles and ministries, they were a little trailer of the reality to come. They weren't the reality. Even though they were miraculous and they were healings, they weren't the reality, they were the trailer. In the same way, your life can be a trailer of the kingdom to come. In fact, in your workplace, in your family, in your friends, on your street, you are the only trailer they might have. And it's when you step up and you start mending relationships with the forgiveness that you've been given by Jesus that they start to taste something different. When they see you looking after the poor and living out not just about your own wealth but about the wealth of others, they see and they taste something different. When they see the kindness that Jesus has for you in you, they start to taste something different. When they see your honesty and justice and faithfulness, they start to taste the kingdom of God. They get a trailer of the world to come. And I want to invite you tonight to not be an obstacle to the, to the good news, but to open your eyes that this whole world is up for it and that your life can be a little trailer of his kingdom. That whets the appetite, that sparks the longing, that makes the people around you enter the kingdom of God and have their slates wiped clean. As we conclude, I want to say that that's not something that you can do in your own power. Because all of us, we're narrow. Our, our views are narrow. That's natural. Uh, how is it that we keep our views broad but not narrow? Uh, and the reality is, is that we have to come back to the good news and taste it again. We have to taste how big it is, how secure it is, how cleanly the slate has been wiped. When we know how secure our place is in God's future. When we know that there is nothing that can take us from it. Because we get our place by Jesus' death and not our own works, then we can live a life that is a trailer for others. It's the, to the extent that you feel secure and that you have a place that you can offer the place to others. So I want to invite you tonight. 2017, the year of the trailer, the year where your life is a taste of the kingdom of God. How is it that could be for you? But I want to come back to one group I addressed before. If you're in here tonight, January 8th, and it's your day to get your, white, your slate wiped clean, then I want you to pray with me. 
and get a new beginning tonight. Make this your day. Fresh beginning. A new life. Jubilee. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know us and you know our hearts and you know that our concerns, they narrow. They become about us. They become about our world. They become about what you can give us, but you are about this world and you anointed your son for the sake of the world, to die for the world and to release the world and to restore the world. And Father, we confess the narrowness of our vision and ask that by the forgiving grace of Jesus, you might open our eyes that our life, our relationships, our reality would be a trailer that invites people into the kingdom of God. Father, for the people here, it's January 8th and they want a fresh start. They want the slate wiped clean. They've been wandering. They've never known you even. And they come with open hands and they say, sorry, and thank you for Jesus and ask you to wipe it clean. Father, forgive them in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.